Good morning, everyone. I don't know how many of you have heard of If This Then That programming, but it is basically the underlying structure behind all of your smart devices. Uh, Siri, Alexa, uh, Google Assistant, If This Then That, uh, put real simply, tells a computer that if something happens, then an action should follow, uh, another thing should happen as well. So, for example, say that you have a, a smart doorbell, a ring, or a nest, or one of the other knockoffs, and somebody rings your bell. Uh, not only will it ding the chime that's connected by the wires, uh, but because of some if this then that programming, a notification will pop up on your phone, or maybe a video showing you who's at the door. That is if this, then that. Uh, if somebody rings the doorbell, then tell my phone, which in turn tells me. Another example, if you have a smart thermostat, uh, some of you have these, you can allow your thermostat to know the location of your phone, right? And you can tell the thermostat if my phone gets more than a block away or a mile away from the house, then turn the air conditioning off. Different devices uh, call these different patterns different things. So routines, they call them schedules. Some of them call them recipes. My guess is most of us are using some version of this conditional programming, if this, then that programming, somewhere without even knowing it. If you ever use Siri at all on your phone, you are using if this, then that. Well, a few years ago, I had an idea. Uh, my mother-in-law was in town visiting, and I knew that she'd be home alone, sitting in our living room while Andrea and I were at work and, and the kids were at school. And I knew that we had an Amazon Echo, uh, basically an Alexa, in the kitchen, on the counter, around the corner from the living room. And so I decided to schedule an if this, then that routine. Uh, I told the Alexa, if it ever becomes 2.03 p.m., which it surprisingly does, once a day, always at the same time, if it becomes 2.03 p.m., then set the volume to eight so it's loud enough to hear but not too loud and play a cat meowing. <laughs> Just one simple meow. Meow. Now, um, we don't have a cat. We don't have a dog. I have a daughter who's incredibly allergic to anything with fur. But I, I thought, hey, my mother-in-law is going to hear this and she's going to think, did I just hear a cat meow? Like, it must be outside. And so I added to the routine right after the first meow, there should be a second meow after a 10 second wait. Wait 10 seconds and then play another cat meow. Meow. And in my mind, what she would have to do is she'd have to stand up and start walking around and asking, wait a second, did a cat get inside the house? And she'd be looking all over inside for a cat. And so I told it one more part of the routine, wait 15 more seconds and then play another cat meow, meow. And in my mind on the third one, surely she would be standing near the Alexa and she would be able to tell where the sound was coming from and she would say, oh, it's a prank. My hilarious son-in-law must have done this. I will call him, I will call him right now and I will tell him, you got me. So 2.03 came and I sat here in my office, I sat by my phone waiting for the call. No call, I realized, well, I need to give her a few minutes, 204, 205, never got a call. And then I realized the bummer of a prank like this is that I was not there to enjoy the fun. I had no way of knowing what happened at all. It, if it worked, if it didn't, uh, if she heard it, if she was taking a nap somewhere. And so I thought, all right, I'm gonna set the routine to start again in another hour and I will try it again once our kids are home. Because my kids will not be able to stop talking about it and they're gonna run all over the house looking for a cat. And yes, they will figure it out that it's an Alexa because they are tech savvy, but they'll get a big kick out of their dad pulled this off and they will think that I am 
great and I'm hilarious and, and, and what fun their dad is, right? And sure enough, when they got home and Alexa started meowing, the kids ran around and they were fooled. And, and actually, um, I scheduled it to repeat every single hour so the fun would not stop. <laughs> and as expected, sooner or later, they figured out that it was Alexa. So I got home from work and I walked in the front door and they said, Dad, Dad, you're never going to believe it. Believe this. Alexa has been making cat meow sounds. It sounded like there was a cat in here, but then we figured out it was Alexa. And I said, what? Who do you think would have programmed that? Waiting for the praise. And they said, oh, grandma told us it was her. Isn't she hilarious? <laughs> and that's the day that I came to a new if-then statement. If you play a hilarious prank on your kids while your mother-in-law is in town, then she is likely to take all the credit. Well, I, I bring that up because this series that we are starting today is actually one giant look at some if-then statements that I think could change your life. Uh, we're calling this thing, If I Really Believed, and we're going to be talking about some things that you say you believe or you think you believe, uh, that you believe you believe. They are your if, but your then would suggest that maybe you don't. Your then would suggest that maybe your if is not what you think it is. Uh, let, me, let me give you some examples of ifs not always matching up with thens, okay? If I constantly complain about politics and I claim to care about whoever is in office, then you would think that I would vote. But the fact that I don't vote says that my if is probably off. By the way, this is hypothetical. I do vote. Um, last November, I voted five times. <laughs> Kidding. That is not true. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, if I, let's do another one. If I claim to care about climate change and fires and pollution and all of these things, then I must be somebody who would recycle my plastic water bottles, or better yet, not use them at all. I would go reusable, right? But because I find it's way more convenient to just throw them in the closest garbage, then maybe my if is not what I thought. Uh, I don't have a slide for this one, but if I complain about how the next generation is narcissistic, but I take an endless amount of selfies that I can't help to post to Instagram, and I'm constantly looking to see how many likes they got, and if I have new followers, okay, you get the idea. If our if is true, then the then should be true as well, but often the then is not true or doesn't happen in our lives, which might mean that our if is not as real as we thought. And where this matters is when it comes to the ifs of faith, the ifs of you and God, the ifs that have to do with what it is you believe. And, and while there are some things that are really easy to say that you believe, like I believe that God is love, I believe everybody matters to God. If we really believe those things, they would change the way that we engage God. They would change the way we engage everybody around us. And so this series, we're going to look at five of those things over five weeks. And, and the one I want to talk about with you this morning is a belief that is foundational to any relationship with God. I should say any healthy relationship with God. It is the belief that you are forgiven. If I really believed that I am forgiven, then, then what? Um, I've been a pastor now for about 25 years, and I will tell you that this belief, or, or, or maybe the doubt of this belief, is the most challenging thing I've seen people struggle through. If you think about it, this belief is fundamental for everyone who follows Jesus. They profess, I am forgiven. 
But here's the truth. Our feelings, our actions, our guilt would tell us that we don't really believe it. Um, Mark Twain was the one who said, humans are the only animals that blush. And then he followed that up with, and we're the only ones that need to. Most of us carry some shame over things we've done in the past. Um, many of us, we think about those things, they make us want to run and hide. And yes, we know that God offers forgiveness to us, and, and we know that Christ died for our sins, but somehow we still don't feel like that's enough. Um, I, I've shared some of my story here before. I'll, I will tell you, I grew up in a church hearing that message. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Jesus died for your sins. I heard it. I could show it to you in the Bible when I was a kid. I would tell other people about it. My if said, my if said, I really do believe that I am forgiven. But my then is a very different story. My then would say, well, if Jesus died for your sins, why are you still doing them? And, and my, my then would say, Jesus is expecting you to get your act together. My if would say, uh, you are forgiven. My then would say, you need to prove that you were worth dying for. And the way you're going to prove that is by doing enough good to outweigh the bad, because the bad is still counting against you, Chris, which right there, right there. If I really believed I was forgiven, then why did I think the bad still counted against me growing up? Something was wrong with my then which for me led to walking away from church, led to walking away from God, because trying to do enough good to outweigh all the bad seemed like a losing proposition. My then was in great turmoil, and what I didn't know, what no one told me, was that my if was off. It, it's crazy. How could you grow up in church every Sunday hearing about God's forgiveness and still think you've done enough bad that his forgiveness will not count for you? And yet, I will tell you, I, I talk to people all the time where this is real. Maybe, maybe that's true for you right now. Maybe for you, it's because what you think you've done is too bad. That you have done something beyond forgiveness. Like you, you think God forgives a lot of people, a lot of sins, but he won't forgive that thing that I did. Or maybe for you, what you really believe is you need to punish yourself for your sins to be forgiven. Because wrong actions demand some kind of punishment. And, and you think, I have not done enough penance to earn God's favor. Um, I'll just say, the church has done a number on people getting them to think that they've got to do penance to earn God's forgiveness. If that's your if, no wonder your then is off. Or close to that, maybe you see the effects of, of the consequences of sin in your life. Because sometimes sin comes with some consequences. Sometimes they're ones that are temporary, over and done with. Sometimes they're things that are just going to last the rest of your life. It's just what it is. And because you're still experiencing the consequences of whatever you did, you think you're not forgiven because you think God is like punishing you with these consequences. And real quick, he is not. Consequences are just a real thing. They're cause and effect. Forgiveness does not make them go away. But your consequences have been making you think, well, God has not forgiven me. For you, it might be that you believe God's forgiven you, but you have not forgiven yourself for something. You, you won't let yourself off the hook. For some of you, you, you don't believe you've been forgiven by God because you've got people who've not forgiven you. Other people have been holding your sin over your head for a long time. You feel like you walk around with a scarlet letter and it's following you everywhere you go. And of course, that messes with your if, the real if, if God has forgiven you. All right, do any of those resonate with you? Do they, do they strike a chord like maybe you felt some of that? I have some good news for you today. 
We're going to help you with your if. And I want to do it through an obscure little passage in the book of Acts that maybe you've never read before, or if you did, you, you don't remember it, but I would bet that even if you know it, you have not associated this passage with forgiveness. Um, we find the story in Acts 10, but actually it begins a little bit before that. The story, as I want to tell it today, begins at the cross. Um, maybe you know, maybe you remember that at the cross of Jesus, there were Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers were the ones who spit on Jesus and mocked him, right? They, they, they put a crown of thorns on Jesus. They're the ones who said, if you are really king of the Jews, then save yourself. They're the ones who physically, actually nailed Jesus to the cross. Roman soldiers were the ones who crucified Jesus. Jesus. Now, yes, the Jewish leadership wanted it to happen. And in fact, even the people had a say in it, right? They had a chance to save Jesus, and instead they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But it was the Roman soldiers who carried it out. Now, I bring this up because usually when we tell the crucifixion story, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the soldiers. Let's put it this way. They're not the main subject. But today, for today's purposes, it's worth knowing there were Roman soldiers, and it's worth knowing how they got there. A um, hundred soldiers would form a unit or a squad or whatever it is they called a hundred soldiers, a group of soldiers. And that unit would be commanded by a centurion. A centurion was the leader in charge of a hundred soldiers. Well, at the cross, there were not just rank and file Roman soldiers. The Bible tells us there was a centurion there making sure that his men did exactly what he told them to do. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, there is some legend out there that the name of the centurion who was overseeing what happened at the cross was Longinus. Longinus. Now, you don't actually see that name anywhere in the Bible, Longinus, but over time, uh, people gave that centurion a name, and sometimes when you hear about the cross, you will hear that name, Longinus. In fact, well, we even used it for our Good Friday walkthrough here at Crosswinds, and uh, it's fine. You got to come up with a name. It's better than calling him Ricky or something like that. <laughs> Uh, but it's challenging. I'll tell you, it's challenging because the Bible does not tell us who this centurion really is. It doesn't indicate. That said, you can kind of narrow it down. And that's going to be very important for helping you with your if today. Let me show you something. In Matthew 27, verse 27, right after Jesus has been beaten and then handed over to be crucified, it says, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around. Company, by the way, that's what you call 100 soldiers, company. But this verse right here, okay, it tells us something very revealing. These soldiers in this company are the governor's soldiers. The governor, Pontius Pilate, who's in town because of the Passover feast. These soldiers have been brought to Jerusalem alongside the governor to quash any rebellion, to deal with prophets like Jesus who might cause trouble, to make sure things don't get out of control. The ones that Jesus gets handed over to, the governor's soldiers, are soldiers who are in town to deal with guys like Jesus who might be causing trouble, but they live out of town. And as we look for clues to who the centurion is, what I want you to see is we know something right away about him, right? He leads a company of soldiers who traveled with the governor, Pilate, to Jerusalem from a place 22 hours away where the governor lived and would be, a place called Caesarea. Now, in fact, that is really important for you to know that today. Um, would you say Caesarea with me? I'll say it, then you say it, okay? Caesarea. 
Caesarea. They have come from Caesarea 22 hours to Jerusalem in order to stop this rebellion, be a show of force, crucify people who might cause problems, in this case, an innocent man. Okay, take a look at this. In Luke 23, we read, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Three in the afternoon is really important for what I want to show you today. Will you remember three in the afternoon? It says three in the afternoon, the sun stopped shining at noon until three in the afternoon, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last at three in the afternoon. And the centurion, here he is, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. The centurion praised God. Now think about that. A Roman soldier who for all intents and purposes likely follows other gods, the god of thunder and the god of war and the goddess of love. This Roman soldier sees the sun stop shining and he has a moment at what time? 3 p.m. And it causes him to praise God. Just so you know, the book of Matthew goes a little bit further with this. It tells us there was an earthquake, that this man feels the earthquake. And it says, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Whoever this man was, after doing and leading out all of these horrific things, he has a moment where he realizes he's killed an innocent man. And the innocent man, Jesus, is the son of God. What do we know about the centurion at the cross? What do we know? He came from Caesarea. His eyes were opened at 3 p.m. to who Jesus really was. And he started praising the one true God in that moment. Now, with that as backstory, let me take you to Acts 10. Acts 10 is after Jesus has risen and Jesus has ascended to heaven. And now the disciples are all out doing what they're doing. They're starting the church. But they're starting the church thinking that the church is primarily for Jewish people like themselves. They don't think of what they're doing as Christianity. They, they think of it as Judaism. It's just that now we have found our Savior. And so because of this, the message of Jesus is not spreading around the world the way that you would think it would. It starts local really local, like Jerusalem, Judea, that's it. They kept it where other Jewish people live. Okay, Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. A regiment was 500 men. A centurion, remember, would lead 100. That means there are five centurions in a regiment. This is a little bit like math class. There are five centurions in a regiment. Cornelius from Caesarea is one of those centurions, and he happens to live and work in Caesarea. Caesarea, where the centurion who killed Jesus was from. One in five chance. Okay, look at verse 2. He and his family were devout, and they were God-fearing. And he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Now, I don't know about you. That seems a little bit odd to me, right? Um, knowing what we know about centurions and Roman soldiers and what their jobs were, that this guy would follow the same God that the Jewish people that they were persecuting were following? It's really bizarre. Uh, yes, 
there were non-Jews or what were called Gentiles that would worship the Old Testament God and they would try to keep the Old Testament law and they would practice the main tenets of the Jewish law. There were Gentiles that existed that were doing those things, but not a Roman soldier, not a centurion. Those were the kind of things that could cause you to lose your job or your rank or your title. But something has happened in the life of this centurion named Cornelius that is causing him and his whole family to worship God. Wait, remember what we read in Luke? That the centurion saw what happened at the cross when the sky turned black and the earth quaked and he began praising God. Okay, that centurion's from Caesarea. This centurion is from Caesarea. I wonder if perhaps Cornelius was the one at the cross. Check this out, verse three. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. What? Get out of here. <laughs> all right, all right, let's just read it, let's just read it. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Now, we're gonna get into the vision and the specifics of it, but, but just look at that first part. He has a vision at three in the afternoon. Wasn't there a time I told you to remember earlier? The time that Jesus breathed his last breath. What was it again? Three in the afternoon. Caesarea, a centurion who had something happen in his life where unlike his fellow Roman soldiers, he's now worshiping the one and only true God and he happens to have a vision at the same exact time of day that, that he first opened his eyes to the truth of Jesus as the Son of God as he hung dead on a cross? We, we, we can't know for sure that this is the same guy, but you guys, what if it's the same guy? Either way, either way, he's done some bad stuff. And whether or not he oversaw Jesus' crucifixion, he oversaw crucifixions, right? He persecuted people. He, he, he ordered a hundred others to do the same thing, which is one possible reason why back in verse two, this God-fearing centurion gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. You wanna talk about guilt? Just like some of us, he thinks that what he has done is too bad. He, he thinks he's gotta be punished, pay penance for all that he's done wrong. This is penance he's doing. He cannot forgive himself. And you ready for this? Others don't view him as forgivable either. But what, what I haven't told you yet is guys like this were not accepted into Judaism or, or even this new Jewish offshoot, offshoot of Jesus followers. People like this were considered unclean to the Jews. It wasn't even an option to join this new group. As a Gentile, Cornelius was very aware that in the eyes of the Jewish God followers, he was untouchable, unqualified, unforgivable. So it's not just whatever he's done, quite possibly being the one to kill Jesus. It's, it's not just his own shame and guilt he's dealing with. It's also the way that religion viewed him. You are unclean. You're a sinner. We won't have you as one of us. And so I, I believe we, we see Cornelius here in verse two, trying to work off his debt, trying to alleviate his guilt, trying to cleanse himself of his sin that, that he does not really believe there is forgiveness for. Three o'clock, Cornelius has a vision of an angel and verse four tells us, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor 
They've come up as a memorial offering before God. Now you send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. The, the angel says, God has noticed you. A Roman soldier has been worshiping him and reaching out for him. And he wants you to send men to go get one of the 12 disciples, the one that Jesus said would one day start his church. His name is Peter. Go send your men, get him, bring him back here. And so Cornelius did. He sends his men to go get Peter. And there's some very interesting content that we, we don't have time to go into about why Peter is even willing to go with some Roman soldiers who show up with him to, centur to a centurion's house in Caesarea. But Peter makes the trip. And verse 25 tells us, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. He said, stand up. I'm only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, which is kind of a mixed compliment, right? You know that Jewish law tells me I shouldn't spend any time with terrible people like you. Uh, but God told me I can't call you terrible. So congratulations, I'm here. Cornelius begins explaining to him this vision he had. An angel told me to send guys to get you. You've now come. And then he says, what does God want us to know? And then Peter tells him, verse 36. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And you know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He said, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then he said, they killed Jesus by hanging him on a cross. I'm not saying who. Somebody killed him. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed judge of the living and dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let me read that last line again, because it's the most important one that Cornelius didn't know. The most important information in this sermon that Peter is preaching. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, this is not meant to be the end of Peter's sermon. Peter is long-winded. He has lots more to say. But on hearing this truth, it says right away in verse 44, the very next verse, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jewish believers who would come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. In other words, the centurion who did not know forgiveness who had been trying to pay for his own sins, the one who had persecuted and killed countless followers of God and perhaps even Jesus himself. That centurion 
and his family received grace. We know from reading elsewhere in the Bible that the Holy Spirit comes into all who receive God's grace. That's what happens here. And even Peter has a moment where he says, I now know that God does not show favoritism. Or a better way to put it, God does not view your sins as worse than mine. And, and I tell you this story this morning because I have a new if-then statement for you. If God can forgive a centurion who possibly pierced Jesus in the side, then you can be sure he has forgiven you. I, I don't know what you've done, but I know it wasn't literally nailing Jesus to a cross like this guy. And, and even if I'm wrong about this guy and it was somebody else, guess what? Jesus, on the cross, looked up to heaven and he said, Father, forgive these specific guys. They don't know what they do. If forgiveness is real for them, then I promise you it is real for you as well. And even though your current then might have you feeling guilt and shame, what God would have you really believe with your if is that because you've confessed, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And he would have you believe that he doesn't punish us for our sins, that as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us. And that God, the one who blots out your sins, says he remembers your sins no more. What you must know is that if Jesus died for your sin, then the only way it was worth it is to have died for all your sins. So you can be fully forgiven. And, and, and to those of you here today who have so struggled with this belief, if I really believed I was forgiven, you are. And believing that will change your then. You know what changes when you believe this? Verse 47, right after this, Peter sees this and he says, surely can no one stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. One thing that happens when you believe you're forgiven is you publicly profess that you're forgiven through baptism. Um, baptism is meant to be symbolic, but, but it is a very meaningful moment that we own it. I am forgiven. I'll, I'll tell you, I sometimes think part of why we struggle with this belief is we have not publicly owned our forgiveness through baptism. If you can't stand up in front of somebody else and say, my sins were washed away, God is making me, has made me a new creation, then no wonder you struggle to really believe your sins were washed away. So you know, baptism doesn't say, I've never sinned. I'm a model citizen. Watch me get baptized. Ba baptism doesn't say, well, my sins aren't that bad. Baptism doesn't say, look at me. I worked off all my sins. I've paid my debt. When are you going to do it? Baptism, it doesn't even say, I'm on the straight and narrow. Watch me get it right from now on. Baptism says, Jesus took my sins to the cross with him, and I live forgiven. And, and, and some of you have never done it, and it's part of why it's so hard to embrace the if. We'd love to walk you through what that looks like around here. 
Uh, Sarah, who's one of our pastors, uh, she's going to be out at a kiosk today that says baptism over it. And if you want to get more info on that, we would love to help you with it. I, I hope you do stop by there because if I really believe I'm forgiven, then I get baptized. Now, here's the other thing. In my opinion, the best thing that happens to your then when you really believe that you're forgiven, you stop living in shame. If I really believe I'm forgiven, then I stop living with guilt, thinking I'm a pretender, that I'm not really one of the family, thinking that I'm an imposter. You know, many of you know the story of the prodigal son, right? Young guy leaves home, squanders a lot of his dad's money, realizes he screwed up. He comes back. His dad forgives him. His dad welcomes him back into the family as if it never happened. Well, which you might not know, there is a similar ancient story. It's kind of an Asian legend. It's a parable as well. It's not a true story, but the story goes that a boy got involved with the wrong crowd in his village. And this crowd convinced him to join them in, in robbing his own father's house. And uh, when the robbery was over, his friends ran off with the stolen treasure and they left him there to face the guilt of this crime all by himself. So the young man was desperate. Uh, he, he'd been deserted by his friends. He betrayed the trust of his father. But his greatest crime was that he had brought public dishonor on the family name. And in a culture where ancestors are worshipped and uh, family integrity is a sacred thing, this was like the worst wrong of all. So, broken, deeply repentant, he went to his father. And he begged forgiveness. And graciously, it was granted. So the father called all the members of the family together to celebrate the return of the son. And, and, and when everybody there had enjoyed the banquet to the fullest, the father stood up and he lifted up his cup of wine for a toast. But shortly after the son began drinking the contents of his cup, he grabbed his throat and then he fell lifeless across the table. The son had been poisoned. And the father, with dignity, nodded to all of the guests in the family and each person stood up and they graciously bowed to the father as they all just silently left the banquet hall because in their minds everything was now put right the son had paid the price of his pardon with poison honor to the family had been restored family integrity was reestablished. it's a dark story huh that is not going to be an upcoming disney movie Okay, if you have asked Jesus to be the leader of your life, you've asked for his forgiveness, for his work on the cross to apply to you, and you don't believe he's actually given it, can I tell you, you are living like the unforgiven son who's drinking poison, who, whose father pretends to give you his grace, but is more concerned about his own honor than he is you. And, and, and the truth is, the one who says he's forgiven you, he proved it by giving his own life. One of the ways that we remember that together here at Crosswinds is through communion. Now, and, and, and as Matt said earlier, on your way in, we gave you some single-serve cups that have a little wafer sealed at the top under the pink uh, uh, like cellophane lid on that. And, and then under that part, you'll find some juice in that cup. And with COVID, we thought it was safer than having everybody here walk up to tables. And 
we want to give you an opportunity to remember Christ's work of forgiveness on the cross, to remember his body represented by the, the, the bread broken for you, the juice representing his blood shed for you. Jesus said, when you do this, when you drink the, 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 the juice or the wine, when you, when, you, when you eat the bread, I want you to remember me and believe in my forgiveness. What I want to ask you to do is just sit and listen to the lyrics of a wonderful song that the band is going to do. And sometime during this song, I'm not going to get up and go, now's the time to do it. Just sometime during this song, as you feel ready, open up, eat, drink the elements as a physical act of saying, God, I believe that you have forgiven me. All right, let's do that.